Stand clear of the closing doors, please. This is the Kleidocast. Sing, singing a song of hungry men. It is the music of a people who will not eat gluten again. Welcome, good peasants and laborers, to the Kaleidocast, sponsored by La Mystery Tab. Goodbye, Val. That's enough out of you. Be respectful. He agreed he won't be present for the unboxing. Not doing this for him. I'm doing it for you. Huh. Surprisingly mature of you. Now, let's unbox. Oh ho, what have we here? I've heard about these. A nicotine patch wired to a pager. No, it's a gluten patch slash VR game Val hawks on his website, Bread and Circuits. For clean eaters trying to quit baked goods or whatever. Let's see, there's a note. Have a blast, ending your addiction to big wheat. Now you're getting into the spirit. I'm just glad it's not, air quotes, food. These stim buns just slap onto your skin. It's like jumping into a hot tub. Look at the start screen. V, I don't see anything. Oh, right. It's all in your head. Electrical signals in your head. What is real, like Morpheus said? Am I right? The buns connect to your nervous system to simulate in-game experiences. Move your eyeballs to drag and click. Let's try zombie playground. Veronica, what are you doing? Sit back down. I can't. The zombies will catch me. Veronica, watch what you're doing. You're going to break something. Yeah, break the record for most splattered zombies. <laughs> Veronica, stop kicking and punching the furniture. It's called Mad Skills. My Iron Glass Funko Pop. Okay, Boomer. We're the same age. This game's been wreaking havoc all over town. There's been reports of malfunctions that... Ow! I just got bit. V, you're bleeding. Like, for real. A zombie bit me! How is this even possible? Electrical signals in your mind make it real, like Morpheus said. Let's get you to urgent care. Don't stop the live stream. You're splattering blood everywhere. This is a goldmine of content. It's the key to listener retention. Grains? Grains? Very funny. It turns you into a gluten-free zombie. Fine. Let's do it your way and get on with the show. We've got a story to share. The show must go on. We'll get you to a doctor after I introduce the story. For this episode, we've got The Bodies Upstairs by the Vansha Segel. Playing it now. Go get your jacket. And hey, no biting. Come on, let's go. The Bodies Upstairs by Divyansha Segel I've always seen bodies, and yet it's disorienting to have the undead show up at your doorstep without warning. Just last night, one turned up on my front porch. A loud knock, and there it was, a body offering an eyeball in an outstretched hand. The hand flaunted cut skin in no less than five places. He had walked through the garden patch I had installed earlier in the summer, and the remains of crushed flowers stuck to his bare feet. His clothes were a bit more expected, formal but shabby, a black blazer, a shirt that used to be white, and black pants, an echo of my days and a job that required a strict dress code. 
The back of his head was open, too, the bloody contents threatening to spill out, and it looked like something had taken a bite out of his left arm. I shook my head in disbelief, even as I made notes on his condition. I had convinced myself that I had no more zombies left to deal with. Reality, however, did not care for my delusions. I led it upstairs into the rooms I now keep for these unannounced guests. This one chose the cramped cupboard in favor of the perfectly nice bed. I nodded at the decision without judgment. Some liked the space to expand into. Others craved recesses they could curl up in while I tried my best to heal them. I hadn't always known what to do, or even that I had to. The lesson was courtesy of a man, a bit of luck, and a lot of practice. The man who changed my life was himself a vision of mediocrity. He wore a boring shirt with boring pants and usually met me in a mostly white room with generic tables and cupboards that lined one wall. The room itself was a lot smaller than some of the classrooms I'd been in, and it could have been used for office hours if it wasn't housed in an apartment turned office in Cobble Hill, or if it had more than two chairs. Our first meeting was on a crisp fall afternoon, where I was beyond ready to be done with the last bit of my paperwork. So, Raj, do you know why you're here? He asked me when I had settled into one of the chairs in the center of the room. I shrugged. Meeting with him was the last requirement that NYU Tandon had forced on me. After that, I could go back to my life of endless TV and piles of ignored problem sets. All I needed was a signature. He flipped a few pages on his clipboard. It says here that your roommate found you passed out on the floor last week. You had bruises and cuts all over your body when they admitted you. She overreacted, I said. People pass out all the time. Had she stayed in her part of the house, I wouldn't have had to spend a week in the hospital, wouldn't have had the student health services bugging me for check-ins, wouldn't have had to come here to meet this spectacled man my papers called Dr. Luca. They don't usually have your level of unexplained injuries if they pass out, Dr. Luca said, raising a single eyebrow. My gaze flicked over to the side. The decaying boy that was responsible for said injuries stared back at me, expressionless. How long have you had zombies following you? he asked. I don't... I began a refusal, then realized he was talking about the decaying bodies. You can see them? I asked, my hushed whisper betraying my surprise. No one had ever entertained the possibility that they existed at all. No, but I know the signs. Those marks above your wrists don't look like ordinary cuts and bruises. I pulled my sleeves down to my wrists. Besides, I have some of my own. Here? My surprise turned to confusion. The only zombies I could see were the ones I'd brought into the room myself. My gaze landed on the bodies. There had been a new addition to my posse in the last few days. I didn't think they were real, I said. No one else seems to be able to see them. Oh, I don't see yours either, but that doesn't mean they're not real. And since they can hurt you, they're dangerous too. I stared at my hands. He never did before, I told him quietly. Hurt me, I mean. He just used to stand there in the corner of every class and every game, every conversation I've ever had with anyone. I used to plead and bargain with him to react to things, to leave me alone, anything. But he just stands there. The words were flowing more easily now. He did nothing, just looked at me with no expressions. When I tried to tell people, no one believed me. At first, they thought it was just an imaginative game from the quirky kid. Then it was an annoying delusion, so I stopped. I wouldn't talk about him and didn't talk to him. It worked well enough. He looked terrifying with all the bits and pieces falling out, but he was mostly harmless. He never hit me before. I didn't think he could touch me at all. 
And now, I didn't know when he would again. The memory of the punches and kicks that the little body had rained on me blindsided me, threatening to fade my vision to black once more. I focused on a spot on the floor and waited until the rest of the pristine white floor filled my view. Do you want to touch him? He asked me. My instant revulsion and fear must have reflected on my face because he quickly added, It's entirely up to you, of course, but to me, it sounds like he doesn't enjoy being ignored, so he needed some way to get your attention. Is that how it works? For a lot of people, yes, but it's different for everyone, so I can't say for certain until we spend some time with him, he responded. Do you know who he is? Do you recognize him? That was an easy answer. I'd spent so much energy over the years trying to ignore the inescapable fact that he was indeed a messed up version of the happiest day of my young life. The boy would be almost unrecognizable as me to anyone else. He had deep gashes on his face, my face, that seemed infected and unfocused eyes. He wore the brilliant blue shirt that I had worn before I changed into the Peter Pan costume for our sixth grade play, now with unexplained holes. And that was where the similarities ended. At that age, I was the complete opposite. I was energetic, couldn't sit still for a single moment, and craved spotlight like nothing else. That Peter Pan show was the first time I had one of those performances where the boundary between me and the character was truly blurred. The applause that followed when it ended thundered in my ears for days. I remember my parents cheering from their seats. Their whistles of joy rang through the theater and joined with other sounds of the crowd's appreciation. My teachers sang praises of my performance, and everyone who was there that night reiterated my potential for my greatness. I had loved every bit of it. Nothing else had ever quite compared to that. Uh, yes, I said, breaking into my first real smile in days. My 11-year-old self was not above throwing a few punches to be noticed. Well, then, yes, he might just want you to notice him. If you'd like, I can help you find ways to satiate him. And what would that look like, I asked. Would I still be afraid of being randomly pummeled? Could I get rid of him entirely, leaving no more bits and pieces to haunt my nightmares? He smiled. A lot of nothing in the beginning. There isn't a switch you can flip to get rid of them, he said gently. We can start with learning how to identify if another incident is imminent, how to deal with it, and how to reduce the likelihood that it happens at all. After that, it's up to you. I can teach you how to live with the zombies and how to not have them follow you everywhere. How to live your life with them in it, if that's something you want? Yes. Yes, it is. The fact that I didn't have to explain the zombies and then see the amusement turn into confused concern was already a miracle. Making sure that I wouldn't get attacked again by these bodies that seemed to haunt only me would be a happy bonus. Great. Let's start with something small today. He went over to the cupboards and picked out a small box from the shelf. He opened it to reveal some cotton, which he dabbed in antiseptic and handed to me. Pick the smallest cut you can find and clean it. Don't think about anything else. Just pick the smallest cut. I studied the boy for the first time in my life. Really studied him instead of finding literally anything else to do with my eyes. The magnitude of his injuries threatened to overwhelm me. His general discoloration, the gaping holes in his abdomen that let me see the inside of his body, long scars along the side of his face. Don't think about anything else. Just pick the smallest cut, Dr. Luca repeated. His voice cut through my spiraling thoughts and I refocused. I found a small area on his elbow, which looked scratched. 
I knelt to reach the little elbow, with my heart thudding loudly in my chest and most of my attention focused on his face to see if he was going to react in any way. I touched the cotton to the inside of his elbow. He didn't flinch. He didn't react at all while I cleaned out the angry red area. I let out a shaky breath when I was done. I wasn't hurt, and I hadn't managed to make it any worse. And that's how my quest for paperwork turned into a weekly appointment where I learned how to sew the bodies back together. I also learned how to identify and manage threats that might arise, how to calm down an agitated one, and how to select the best threads for SOS versus healing surgeries. More importantly, I was marginally less afraid of the bodies attacking me out of the blue. Dr. Luca insisted on calling them zombies, but that word didn't sit well with me. Zombies follow you around with a straightforward aim of eating your brain. There was nothing straightforward about them. I considered ghosts for a bit, since mostly they hang around and haunt me all day. But I viscerally feel the boy every single time I sew him up. I mend his skin and bandage his wounds and pass threads through his very corporeal body to stitch him up. Ghosts seemed quite inadequate. So bodies it was. Once the latest body settled into the cupboard, I fished out my headphones and put on some MCR. Sleep was going to be a while, I knew. Every new body had a settling in period where we took some time to get used to each other. I needed to be vigilant until we found what our status quo was. I decided to pass the time by making tea. My tea drawer sprung open with the lightest of pressures presenting me with my options. Nothing black, I decided. It was too late in the night for caffeine if I had any hopes of sleep tonight, new body or not. I did not want to be up till sunrise. Peppermint, lavender, jasmine, rose. I read off the labels, waiting for one of them to feel right as I'm not okay blared in my ears. Chamomile, hmm, that last one gave me pause. It was predictable, sure, but I couldn't argue with the results. Besides, the name was fun to say, Chamomile. I sounded out as I steeped some leaves into the NYU Violet souvenir mug that I had picked up as a joke from the university bookstore. No one who actually went there ever referred to themselves as a violet. The motions kept me busy and the music ensured that I didn't have space for any real thoughts. The kettle clicked off and I poured the hot water on the leaves. I watched as the steam swirled its way out of the cup, tracing a disappearing path into the sky. I felt my shoulders unclench a little as I watched the tea leaves dance in the water. Seeing brains dripping out of wounded heads never got any easier, no matter how long you'd been working on them, especially when you recognized the attached face as yours. I sat there in a sort of trance, watching the leaves and the steam play in the cup. A hand on my shoulder brought me back. I looked up to find my wife's concerned eyes staring back at me. The music in my headphones had stopped. The tea was no longer piping hot. I hadn't noticed. Rough night? She asked gently. You could say that. I took a sip of the lukewarm, too strong tea and grimaced. Do you want to tell me about it? I shook my head. I decided to rinse the cup out instead, and even that proved to be a challenge. The cup slipped out of my hands and shattered into a thousand pieces. No, 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 the frustration finally breaking through. Just no! I slammed my fist on the table and caught a shard in the side of my hand. Ugh! I let out a scream, more out of frustration than pain, no longer attempting to maintain composure. Okay, let's get you out of the kitchen and away from the sharp stuff, she said. She placed a towel on the wet table and directed me to the sofa in the living room to bandage my hand. I don't know how much longer I can do this. I really thought I was done, I said, my helplessness bleeding into my words. Breaking cups? I acknowledged the joke with a half smile. Getting more bodies. 
She rubbed my back as I told her about the new one that was now finding its bearing upstairs. Yeah, the little boy had been doing so much better, too. I just thought he was on his way out, and wouldn't that be great? I would be rid of all the old stuff that wasn't working before we start this new chapter. But there was a real chance for things to go right this time. I'm no longer flaky, and my troop doesn't hate me. I've been putting in the hours. I rubbed my face. Now is when a new one decides to show up? I really had it in my head that I could be fully focused on this. That if the bodies weren't around, or at the very least didn't need too much work, I'd be able to do this one thing well. Now I have to babysit another unpredictable body instead of giving the play my best. I finished my rant, surprised at how breathless I was. The silence that enveloped us as she considered my outburst was broken only by the intermittent sounds of shuffling from upstairs that only I could hear. Okay, two questions, she said, finally. Are the zombies actually unpredictable, and are you really going to work any less hard on the play? Of course they're unpredictable. I never know when they show up, I answered the first. But you know what to do once they've shown up, don't you? In all the years I've known you, I haven't seen you not handle them with care, not once. You've never seen me act, either. And what are you going to do about that? A playful challenge in her eyes. I understood she was trying to goad me into feeling better, but I wasn't ready to let go just yet. You're lucky that you don't see them. They can get violent, and they're generally gross and terrifying. In college, they... You're not in college anymore, she cut me off. You're not young or helpless or alone. She took my hand into hers and stared right into my eyes. You don't have to do this alone. I tried to brush her off, giving her a half-smile and acknowledgement. She didn't let me. I'm serious. We could ring Dr. Luca for a refresher or find another specialist. I saw listings of four different zombie wranglers on my way to the grocery store today. You are not alone. How's the boy looking today? Dr. Luca had asked me at the beginning of the first meeting in which I started to believe that I could have a handle on the bodies for real. About the same as last week. I haven't had a lot of time to practice this given the midterms. Now, from anyone else, I'd have expected a lecture into the virtues of time management and a balanced schedule. Not Dr. Luca. He was happy to keep the bar pretty low. After failing three of my four classes, being kicked out of my troop for being undependable, and being hospitalized all in the span of a semester, I wasn't complaining. He waited for me to elaborate, so I did. I decided to study this time make a real effort rather than just flailing about at the last minute fretting over why I didn't know anything. He could be almost as expressionless as the bodies sometimes, but I noted a hint of a smile on his face. And what about the new one? Are you seeing any changes on her? In the days after my hospital stay, a zombie version of my old roommate had also joined my posse. I stared at the taller body that stood right behind him. I'd been trying to avoid her as usual, but now my gaze took stock of her condition. She wasn't nearly in as bad a shape as the boy. The gash that extended vertically across her left eye was still there, so were those across her forearms. I hadn't worked on this one at all. The boy was the one that had attacked me, and it was the one I was most afraid of. Nothing to report, really, I said, once my inspection was complete. She's standing right behind you, by the way. That amused him. He turned around in his chair and waved to the air behind him. She clearly wants to be a part of this conversation. Let's invite her in, Dr. Luca said. Have you talked to your former roommate recently? The one out in the world. I ran into her yesterday, I admitted, by Borough Hall. She was with people, so it wasn't a long meeting or anything. It was just 
unexpected. It was the first time I'd seen her since she moved out a few months ago. I had been angry then, and we hadn't parted on the best of terms, so I was surprised to be greeted with no malice, no reproach. She simply hugged me and grinned. She told me that I looked a lot better already, and that she was glad I was pulling through. It was jarring to see her because I realized I didn't hate this person, not in any real way. The person I had a grudge against couldn't possibly be this jovial, empathetic woman I had been friends with. I saw clearly for the first time how afraid she had probably been when she returned from class to find her friend lying on the floor among weeks-old dirty laundry, bruised and crusted with blood. Do you want to try to work on her, then? Dr. Luca asked once I finished my story, referring again to the corpse. I think you'll find her a little more amenable than your usual practice. I was skeptical, but I nodded. He turned out to be right. The cuts on her arms started to fill in right after I cleaned them out with some antiseptic. Even before I picked up my needle and thread, the gaps got smaller. It was infinitely easier to sew them together than any work I'd done on the little boy. In our next meeting, I asked Dr. Luca to show me how to heal an eye. He showed me how to remove it safely to be able to stitch together a gash that's behind it, and how to replace it back into the socket. Over the next few weeks, I practiced the delicate sewing work on an orange first. I didn't want to mess up the body any further. After I successfully performed the operation on three different fruits, I decided to perform it on the real thing. She was already looking a lot healthier by then. There was even a slight red flush to her face, as if she might have gone running. Apart from the eye injury, she was starting to look more like a college student than an animated body. It was as disconcerting as it was comforting. The operation worked beautifully. My former friend's expressionless face stared back at me. She touched her face for a long moment, and I wondered if it was disbelief. I couldn't believe I'd succeeded either. I gave her a hug, then belatedly noted that it was the first time I had initiated contact that was not injury-related. She didn't reciprocate, obviously but she did give me a quick nod, then walked out the door. As our sessions progressed, Dr. Luca had told me it was theoretically possible to be rid of the bodies, that there still wasn't a switch to flip, but if you worked on them long enough, and they healed well enough, and your luck was shining brightly, they sometimes decided to leave by their own accord. I can now confirm that to be true. I haven't seen that walking corpse since the day she walked out of the room. I did see the alive version later that evening over dinner to see if there was a friendship there to be salvaged. There was. Don't forget, curtains up at 7.30, I said as I entered the house, dropped my work bag, and picked up my costume. The Lost Boy's costume was spread out on the living room sofa, right where I had left it last night when I got it ready. I had to go in early to prepare, but that didn't mean I couldn't slip in a reminder before I left. I totally forgot you had your thing today, my wife said, playful sarcasm dripping from her words. I already made plans with the girls. She kissed me hello. Okay, no, we're not even joking about this, I said in a mock serious tone to match her. She rolled her eyes. Gosh, okay, yes, of course, I'll be there on time. I kissed her back. I'll see you in a bit. I winked and left the room. On my way out the door, I thought briefly about the bodies. Should I go check on them before I headed out? I wasn't giving the new one as much time as they usually needed, but what good could I possibly do today? Besides, the last few weeks had shown that I needed the settling in period more than he had. He was actually a model guest. He mostly stayed in his room and I never saw him unexpectedly follow me places, which was good since I was expecting to see him everywhere. He was evidently happy to leave me alone as long as I gave him an hour or two every few days. 
Each body is different, and I was grateful he was one of the easier ones to manage, given that I barely had time to catch my breath between work and rehearsals. As it turns out, I was worrying about the wrong body. The boy in the brilliant blue shirt found me on the street where my car was parked. He looked different, though. Not like I was used to seeing him now. Not with just a few scratches and a slightly off-color face. No, instead he looked like I hadn't spent the last decade fixing and repairing every single part of him. The little boy had unraveled back into decay without explanation, back to how he used to show up in my nightmares before I met Dr. Luca. I sank to the ground, tears threatening to spill over as I stared at the years of effort that had unraveled. Not now. Please, not now, I whispered to him. He didn't respond, of course. I don't know how long I stayed there, feelings of betrayal, anger, and helplessness warring in my chest while I sat holding back tears through sheer stubbornness. I did not want to let it all go to waste. Not young, or helpless, or alone. My wife's words from the other day came back to me, unbidden. I latched on, repeating them as an incantation that might just keep me afloat. My wife was inside, probably finishing up the last of her work or catching up on the bills that I had let slide over the last few weeks. Fifteen minutes away, there was a whole cast of people waiting for me. They'd be disappointed if I didn't show up. I wasn't flaky. I'd made that decision and I was going to stick to it. It had been years since I'd been someone who let the bodies keep me from doing things I wanted. I was no longer the person who used them as an excuse to bail on people who depended on me. I took a steadying breath. I had planned for things like this. The car had an emergency sewing kit. I took another breath and found my feet again. I stowed the costume into the back seat and got the kit out of the glove compartment. Slowly, ever so slowly, I sewed the long gashes on his left arm. I watched as the skin slowly connected. I cut the thread and it stuck. Good, I could do this. I could put him back together, I nodded to myself. Just not right now. I got in the car and put it in first gear, then paused to see what he would do. He did not follow. I slowly backed out of the parking spot until I had reoriented my car. He was staring at the car, at me, at everything and nothing in particular. I stared back and I saw him finally as he was, as a little boy standing in front of my house. Behind him was the flower patch I'd started to restore, a porch that needed a paint job, and a door that opened to the life I'd been able to build. He was still as gross and still as terrifying, but no longer insurmountable. The next few hours became a blur of costume, hair, makeup, ribbing, and nervous laughter. There was only one thing on my mind, and it had nothing to do with the bodies waiting for me at home. The dinginess of the theater and the scraping of the chairs disappeared as I sauntered onto the stage. I lost myself in the movements, in the dialogue, in the show itself. There was no reason to be anywhere else. Divyansha Segal is a speculative fiction writer currently based in New Delhi, India. She is also an associate editor at the Kaleidocast. Tony Perry is an actor and singer-songwriter. He narrated the film Lost and Found and the audio comic The Captain Punishment Adventure Hour. He has performed in English and Yiddish, and he's happy to talk about all things Doctor Who. Welcome back to the KaleidoCast. We're patching in now with Veronica, who's broadcasting remotely from my bedroom while she recovers from vegan zombification. Hello, and welcome to Hospital Stays Home Edition. Veronica, it's the KaleidoCast. Stick to the script.
Easy for you to say. That quack hack who treated my zombie bite never mentioned I'd have side effects. Just be glad I had a guest bedroom. How are you feeling? I'm seeing things, Allie. My cat Pickles is here. What? V, I told you I don't want pets in my house. Allison, Pickles died a year ago. I, I think I'm being haunted. Maybe you just need to catch up on your sleep? Wish I could, but Pickles keeps astral projecting onto the bed with me. You try sleeping with a ghost cat. She's coughing up real hairballs, Allison. Not even the courtesy to throw up ectoplasmic fur. You're still an asshole, Pickles. Rest your sweet, chonky soul. Okay, you'd better clean that up. Or at least call an exorcist. Maybe this cleansing sage CBD vape will do the trick once I give it a burn. Great. Now my bedroom's gonna smell like Post Malone's bathroom. I think it's working. Go in peace, Pickles. I'll always remember you when I look at the stains on Allison's carpet. Wait, what? What stains? Not stains. A sign from beyond. Don't speak ill of the dead. You owe me an oriental rug, Veronica. Asian, not oriental. Don't be problematic. And I thought it was from Ikea. We've got a show to do. Today, we present The Five Stages of Grief by Nadia Bulkin. The Five Stages of Grief by Nadia Bulkin Matilda died on St. Agatha's Day, even though she is my patron saint. When Matilda took a bad turn and the doctor said it was time to make preparations, mother and father gave St. Agatha to Matilda just because of the date. She was too young to be confirmed, and they couldn't let her cross over without a patron saint. But St. Agatha was mine, and I thought that Matilda could have chosen her own, because she came home the morning after feast day in her hospital gown. Father was carrying her. I remember I was sitting on the chair with Lelacy in my lap, facing the locks and bolts on the door. Mother was carrying all of Matilda's things, the stuffed rabbit and the picture books and the little yellow duck that clapped. The three of them went up the stairs in a flurry, with Mother singing nursery rhymes. I watched Matilda during their ascent, and she had a strangeness in her eyes, a distance. They'd get darker later, as weeks passed. She sat at the table and watched us eat for the first of many times that night. Mother talked to her continuously, but the rest of us couldn't. For all of Mother's prodding, Matilda would only stare at the food. She didn't have silverware or a plate set out for her, but she still reached over to the potatoes with her pale baby arms. Matilda, said Mother, but she put them in her mouth anyway. Then her face puckered. I can't taste it, said Matilda. She shoveled in more, and her tantrum became an alarm, because she couldn't taste any of it, she said. Father said that she wasn't really hungry. This was just out of habit, and Mother said her name. Matilda! Matilda! I sent myself to bed early, and took Lelacy with me. Her screaming went on for another hour before quiet overcame, and then our bedroom door opened, and Father brought Matilda in. She was still a heap by then. It looked like he was carrying a stack of fire logs. 
He tucked her in and took a step back as if he were making sure that the sheets weren't moving with her breathing. I called him, and he came. Why is Matilda still here? I was whispering so she wouldn't hear, even though her bed, aside from the lump in the middle that was her, looked unlived in. It was no change for me. It was lifeless and bare all through her hospital stay, too. Grandma and Grandpa went to Zurichia. He stroked my arm. He squinted, but it was dark. When he smiled, his teeth didn't show. They didn't glimmer. They were hiding behind his workman lips. Because we're not ready for her to go yet. I looked at the unmoving piece of driftwood in her bed, and I nodded because Father looked like he needed me to understand. And after he left, I did sleep for a bit, with Lalacy in the crook of my knees. But I woke up sometime before light, when Lalacy started bristling and hissing, with Matilda standing over me all pale-faced and dead. I only came to the hospital a few times, and I never got very close. There was concern about a contagion, and I hadn't had all my shots. But even then, I never remembered her smelling like sulfur, just antiseptic, and the lilies mother always brought. She was so pale, so sunken in. I wanted to hide, but I knew if I pulled the covers over my head, she'd still be there, this dark amorphous blur behind the cotton. Go back to sleep, I said, without looking at her. Nothing happens when I close my eyes. Grandpa was only with us for a week after he died, and he spent most of that time while he was waiting for Grandma in the big rocking chair. Not rocking, really, just resting his eyes like he said. I suppose he didn't sleep since he could no longer wake. He didn't go to bed and he didn't try to eat, and he was fine. Quiet, yes, and faded, but in no distress. Matilda was confused. It's okay. Just lie down and close your eyes. Mama and Papa will wake you up tomorrow. Molly, I don't feel sick anymore. You're all better now, that's why. Why is Lacey mad at me? I moved my hand down to pet her, and Lacey's tabby back arched and her fur flared out like a mane. With three strokes, she settled down again, but she kept growling at Matilda from behind my legs, with her ears flat against her head and her eyelids peeled back. I said I didn't know why, but I wanted to say other things. That Lalacy didn't like the dead, that Lalacy could smell the sulfur on her, that Lalacy wished she'd gone straight to Zurichia instead of lingering in our safe house. But I had always been told to be kind to Matilda in whatever form she take. My sickly little sister, my parents' princess, my little follower, my dead shadow. Matilda lifted her finger, and Lalacy crouched down deeper into the mattress. Thank God Matilda didn't try to touch her. At least not then. Instead, she went back to bed, and she didn't make the floorboards creak, although the sulfur stayed by my bed, and it burned my throat. Micah was born during a bleeder storm. So father made sure the doors and windows were sealed up, and mother had him in their bedroom, all over the cream-colored sheets. I was just barely old enough to help, but Matilda had not aged, so she sat in the hallway outside with her pallid hands tucked between her legs. When I ran outside to put the kettle on, she was staring at the slab of metal we covered the window with, listening to the bleeders howling, their scratching on our house. I have always hated that sound, but Matilda was dead. 
maybe she understood what they were saying. I wear earplugs during bleeder storms, and I don't try to pick out words. When Micah first saw Matilda at the side of Mother's bed, he cried and struggled in his swaddling cloths. He was repulsed, and Matilda knew. We found her standing over his cradle with her hair drooping over his face. She was watching him breathe, she said. She was watching the tears flow down his cheeks, odd wet things that she only remembered now, and only vaguely. Micah was screaming bloody hell, and Father took Matilda away. She dripped all over his shoulders, her bulbous eyes lolling out of those sunken sockets to watch Micah twist up in fear. But I want to see him! Her voice had sunk with her eyes. Papa, I want to see him! Mother, she cooed to Micah, offering him her soft glowing face as a pacifier. What if Matilda's a bleeder? She looked up and stared at me in deep offense. How can you say that about your own sister? Just because she's my sister doesn't mean she might not turn into a bleeder. I wonder now if I wanted her to be one, despite the danger, because then they would have to ship her body to Zurichia, and the doppelganger that made our house perpetually funereal, sitting in corners like a cobweb, would have to leave too. I had made friends by then, and I no longer invited them over. Our house was a sideshow. It still had windows and too many doors, and it had Matilda. Well, said Mother, tucking in her lips, she's not, and I know because I check her every day and she's got no lesions. She's absolutely fine. A beautiful little girl. Those were things she said with tangible pride, with her eyes closed in blind faith, like her mental stability rested upon their truth. I had already said once, in a fit of childish rage, that she was ugly. I knew it. Micah knew it. Mother and father looked at her amphibious, clammy skin that pinched her bones and saw her chubby baby pictures. But there was such an uproar when I said it for the first time that I wasn't going to say it again. I hate uproar. Matilda didn't. Her body stayed small and skinny, but her tantrums grew volcanic. Sometimes she'd claw at father when he tried to put her to bed, and then he'd lean over the bathroom sink putting aloe on the welts so no one asked questions at work. It got bad enough that we couldn't leave her alone in the house, else she'd scream so continuously that the neighbors would think we really were harboring a bleeder and call the police. I hate you all, she would spit, kicking and contorting into positions worthy of carnivals, because she felt no more pain. Her gums would peel back with her eyelids, and she would thrash at us. She would flail. I want to leave. Let me leave. Open the door. Open the door. I sat on the couch, comforting Mother, while Father lunged at Matilda to grab her and straitjacket her. But one such winter evening, she developed the wherewithal to melt out of his lumberjack arms and manifest herself in the opposite corner of the room, near the umbrella stand. We were all shocked. When Grandpa waited for Grandma to die, he never flew anywhere, just sat in his rocking chair, creaking back and forth. It's what made him a benign, so far from a bleeder. He was passive in death. But Matilda started to teleport. She tried to use this new power to make her demands clear. Dishes thrown at the bolted door, the cabinets open and slammed, rattling the china inside. Sometimes she even threw herself against the exits of our house, but her body was not a body, as she had learned. It was a remainder, 
the leftovers of a life that was permanently gone, like the grey dust that makes the clouds, she was just fallout. She had a malleable form, and now she would never be controlled again. After she threw dinner-time fits, she'd fly up the stairs. Father would tuck the blankets around her, only to find that she'd slipped through the mattress in box spring, and was crawling out from under the bed. The only rule she couldn't break was the one about leaving the house. That was the only wall she couldn't walk through. Sometimes at night, I would wake up, and she would be hanging from the ceiling, looking down at me and Lelacy, wrapped up like snails in wool and cotton. She never even pretended to sleep anymore. Molly, I'm so lonely. Even when she was sad, her voice was like a growl, the voice of a bear coming out of a little girl. I could not see her eyes through the hair that dripped like seaweed. You don't love me anymore. I didn't, but I never told her that. It would have been cruel. That was the season Lilacy died. Of course I knew. I knew when she wasn't on my bed in the morning and her litter box was still clean. For about an hour, I fit myself into the smallest crawl spaces in our decrepit house, hoping that she was just hiding. We were, after all, a house of hiders. Even Micah would roll under couches if we left him on the floor. So I screamed into the dark holes. It was down in the cellar that I found her limp little body, her fur cold and stiff as if in perpetual alarm. She must have been frightened. I could see the bruises around her neck, bruises that fit tiny, bony fingers. I touched her whiskers. I tapped her nose. We got her when I was very small. We found her wandering, a mewling kitten asking for a home. She had always been mine. She claimed me. By the time I went back upstairs, Lilacy had come back. She had appeared in the kitchen and was pawing at her food dish, making the most wretched and pitiful sounds. I looked at Matilda, who was sitting on the couch quite pleased with herself, and I finally started screaming, exhaustion of the lungs, drying out the voice box as I hollered terrible words. I hate you, several times. How dare you, you little brat, why can't you just be dead? Why won't you go away? I didn't scream for long. Reason was thrown at me. Lilacy was here, wasn't she? It wasn't as though I had lost her for good. She was just changed. Lilacy came out of the kitchen on rickety legs. Her eyes never used to be such a sickly yellow. I crouched down and called her. Lilacy! Lilacy, come here, darling! My cat's disembodied spirit pulled back and hissed at me, and then she hobbled over to Matilda, who opened her arms and smiled, croaking, mocking. Lelacy, Lelacy, come here, darling. For a while, I tried not to come home. There was a boy at school, his name was David, and he lived on the other side of town, in a large modern house without doors or windows or chimneys, an impenetrable fortress of sleek metal. No bleeders and no benigns. His father worked for the Department of Postmortem Security, and I was too ashamed to tell them about Matilda. I hated walking home, no matter where I'd been. It was always that same road, the row of old, sick houses with weak foundations, ready to collapse. It was like I could feel Matilda's eyes boring into me through the walls of metal. I felt them everywhere. Even on sleepovers across town, I would wake up with the feeling of little fingers pulling down my sleeping bag, getting lost in my hair, whispering, Molly, Molly, 
Come home and keep me company. I knew the neighbors whispered about that house at the end of the road with that dead little girl that's been there seven years now. The mailman asked me if my parents were all right. On All Hallows' Eve, little boys from the neighborhood threw stones at the windows and shouted at Matilda to show yourself. Father went after them with a shotgun, but they would scatter into the shadows, laughing. Who knows how David found out, but he found out. His parents had a talk with me about the dangers of keeping a spirit in a residential area and not shipping it to Zurichia on one of those huge reprocessed oil tankers. Didn't I know it could go bad at any moment, they demanded. Research has shown that the likelihood of a benign becoming a bleeder is 60, no, 70% greater if it's confined to a house as opposed to when it's roaming around in the dead zone. That's what David's father called Zurichia. I guess the International Committee thought Zurichia sounded nicer than Dead Zone. More welcoming. But what could I do? We were so much a family of hiders. Mother hid in the attic with her books. Father hid in the den with his television. Most nights, we said very little at the dinner table. We stared at our food and picked at it while Matilda rioted upstairs. And then we lay on our cold and lonely beds, waiting for the morning, while Matilda and Lelacy prowled the corridors. It was like we were the dead ones. She's family, I told David's parents flatly. They concluded I was crazy and we weren't to see each other again. So I stayed home. Mother thought I was coming around. Maybe I was. Father wanted me to keep an eye on Micah, because he was no longer scared of Matilda and actually seemed to favor her companionship. She was teaching him strange games, demented versions of hide-and-seek and tag. Once we found him blue-faced, curled up in a tea chest covered with sheets. He said that Matilda told him to hide there and wait for her to find him. We found her skulking around the attic, with no intention of ever going back for him. But of course, she spit at us and disappeared. Michael was the first to see the lesions. He told me, Why does Sissy Matilda have those dark spots? And then I started taking peeks at her. There was one under her dense, tangled hair, and one in the crook of her arm bulging, dark red sores that spread with every tantrum Matilda threw. Every time her temper rose, the lesion would gobble up more of her pale porcelain skin. They looked infected and painful, and even though there was no blood pumping in her heart, she was bleeding through those sores. Out they came, little drops of pungent rage dribbled on the carpet. I grabbed Micah and ran. Matilda's a bleeder. Mother and father were sitting in the living room when I told them, their faces as blank as the wall behind them. I refused to put Micah down. I had let Lelacy out of my hold, and now she was dead and disfigured and spent her days howling in the basement where we buried her. She's a bleeder, I shouted. She has the lesions. I thought you were checking her. Micah put his hands to his ears and wrinkled his nose. Mother and father turned their heads slowly to look at each other. Are you listening to me? Mother sighed and bent her head. Father squeezed her hand. We know, Molly, he said to me. But please, she's not hurting anyone. This isn't legal. She has to go. She wants to go. No. Mother was shaking her head. No, she doesn't. She wants to stay. My baby wants to stay. And I want her to stay, and we all want her to stay, so why can't she stay? She had started to shriek then, and there was a dampness to her voice. She was about to cry. 
All her fretting and crying over Matilda had aged her. She had been young once. Now her hair was made of straw. Father gathered her up into his arms and shushed her and said that of course Matilda could stay. Mother looked at me from behind Father's shoulder. Her eyes were hesitant and defensive and quick to close, quick to break apart from mine. Molly, she'd be all alone, all cold and alone. I went back into the hallway to the sound of their sobbing, with Micah still clinging to me, resting on my jutting hip. Ours was a cement house, because it was built before the Department of Postmortem Security's safety standards were passed into law. Half its lighting was supposed to come from the sun. Our stringy electrical wiring didn't make up for the loss, although with the weather as it is and was, I suppose it wouldn't have made a difference if our windows hadn't been boarded up. But it meant that our hallways shrank and darkened into tunnels lit by sporadic torches, and the permeability of cement meant that sometimes we could feel moisture coming in through the walls, through the floor. Matilda was in the hallway. Sometimes I wonder if it was her lingering presence that cursed us. Sometimes the house's weight followed her, like she was some kind of vortex of energy that the house groaned and shifted in order to obey and draw closer to. Maybe that was why the house was shrinking. Matilda was a black hole with her mouth wide open. I hurried past her, telling Micah not to look at her. I won't hurt you, Molly. She followed us, floating down the hallway on her dirty tiptoes. I wanted so badly to leave if only to sit in the yard and know she could not haunt us there. Her fingers brushed the back of my shirt like a twig in a wood. I turned around and screamed, Get away from me! Her huge, drowned eyes looked at me in want. Do you remember when we played astronauts? There was a playground nearby. We'd go at twilight on the clearest of days, when you can almost see the stars, and swing as high as possible for as long as possible to make believe that we were in space shuttles orbiting distant planets. Repairing the craft required crossing the monkey bars. Reentry required the slide. When the wind was high, we called it turbulence, a word we'd never experienced. I want to do that again. Another sore was blossoming at her hairline. Tiny tentacles of rippling magenta stretched across her temple, itching, yearning, hating. I had nothing to say, but Matilda sighed and dissolved of her own accord. There was only an hour of light left when I zipped up Micah's jacket and pulled his hat down so it covered his ears. He had never been to the playground. Micah's time on the outside was really only within the straps and buckles of the car seat that mother and father still tied him to, even though he had gotten too big for it. I guess it was Matilda, forever frozen at swing-set age, that reminded me. Where are we going? asked Micah, dragging on my hand. The sidewalks were covered with scraggly, serpentine weeds, so we walked on the road, beside the gutters clogged with debris. The houses here were bare and empty. There was no traffic likely. To the moon, I said. The playground was smaller than I remembered. It was part of a neighborhood park, built into an enclave of old trees and marked with wood chips. The light was dimming, our timing was perfect. I glanced down at Micah. He looked reluctant. Haven't you ever wanted to go to the moon? No. Oh, come on. It'll be fun. We'll just take a little trip around the world. You just keep your eyes on the sky. 
I got him on the swing, and he clenched the little metal chains so hard that his hands would be bleeding if it weren't for his gloves. He was so afraid when I started to push. He didn't like being catapulted forward, although he only went a few feet at first. But when he felt my hands on his back and realized he was always falling back towards me, he relaxed. I heard the beginnings of his childish high, the surprised giggle, the lean forward, the kicking swimmer's legs. I pushed harder, pushed him higher. The air was searing. It was almost clean. And yes, I wished Matilda was there. Then the storm sirens began. From there, we couldn't see the radio tower, but even Micah was old enough to know that the sirens meant nothing but the worst. He was in the midst of flight when they began, and when he came back for another push, I did push him, because for the first few seconds I didn't believe the alarm. All it took was a rustling of the oaks that hugged the playground. I grabbed Micah off the swing and ran with him in my arms. Molly! He started screaming. We were on the road. My footsteps hit my ribs like punches. I was looking nowhere but ahead. Don't look! The route took forever. Hedges moved and so did branches. I stayed dead center on the winding two-lane streets, because hands more twisty and gnarly than Matilda's were reaching up through the gutters, sloughing aside the mud and leaf dust. Then I hated the fading light. Michael was crying. I didn't have the lung capacity to tell him we were almost there. When I slammed my fist on her heavily bolted door, I looked back for one brief sweep and saw the bleeders swarming over the roofs. It is their world, more and more. Not just the rebellious bleeders, but the legions and legions of benigns. When Zerichia is full, they will need another vacant continent. Father was furious. He checked the door bolts twice and said we could have died. Mother was in the kitchen doorway, cradling the cold wall dark. Matilda was in the middle of the hallway, staring up at the ceiling and stretching her neck back so far her head should have come loose. The awful scratching howls hit the door when he was still up against it, and he jumped back as if shocked. Mother cried out and extended her arms towards us, her babies, and after we moved towards her and she took us in, she began to pray. We each had our pendants hung around our necks, me and Micah and Matilda. It was all that linked us now. While the house began to shake and Mother's appeals to the saints were buried in the avalanche of sound that was the roaring bleeder storm, Father watched the ceiling while they trampled it, watching as family photographs hanging from nails jostled under the weight of the stampede. I don't know why we felt unsafe that time, why Mother hugged us as if the end had come. Could we smell it in the air? Did we know? The first thing we heard was a crash. Not of glass, but something heavier, coming from upstairs. Mother screamed, so Micah screamed. Maybe it's that cat, said Father. But we all knew it wasn't. Lalacy was no bleeder. Lalacy was mourning herself in the basement. What followed were the same sounds of a tempest locked in a cage that Matilda made when she was furious, amplified by three. Then we did hear glass shattering and unbreakable things hitting walls, and after one pressurized pop, the sound of a geyser let loose. The bathroom, I said. The toilet. It came in through the toilet. It must have been the bathroom door that blew open, followed by an eruption of thousand-tongued curses, a fury so hollow that it sent shockwaves up and down the upstairs corridor. We could hear the posts of the railing shaking and the wall paint peeling under ripping, scratching nails. 
Matilda's eyes followed its sound as it ricocheted from room to room above us, dislodging all evidence of life it could find. It's in the house. Father went to the hall closet and took up his titanium bat, muttering to himself. He was giving it a few habdash practice swings when Mother dragged us children over the mosaic-tiled kitchen floor and under the table, the white tablecloth brushing our heads, and locked us into her huddle by her bony arms. Shut your eyes, my babies. Shut your eyes. They won't take any of you away from me. Mother did shut her eyes, fiercely, and so did Micah, but Matilda and I were looking at each other. I saw her slip away from Mother's embrace. In another blink, her tiny, weightless form, racked with disease even now after death, had seeped out of the kitchen. Matilda! Matilda! I was shoved out from under the table to bring her back, but the hallway was so broken it was scarcely recognizable. My father was chasing the invasive bleeder like a maniac, his bat smashing walls most of the time. I thought I was in an earthquake. I thought I was dying. Cement was flying like hail, and the walls were splattered with blood, the bleeders and fathers. I fell. I stepped on broken glass. I covered my ears to keep the bleeders' words out of my head. Most of all, I tried not to look at it. It was so grossly deformed. A walking, flying corpse. A lesion in and out of itself, with all traces of humanity lost to its hate and rage. I stumbled up the stairs on hands and knees, cross-eyed because something hard and crumbly hit the back of my head. There were repeated booms against the bolted window at the top of the stairs. The corridor leading off to our bedrooms was filled with strips of plaster and cinderblock dust, like our house had been stripped down to its skeletal remains. And there, Matilda in the bathroom, suddenly gentle and small, a baby sister, standing next to the toilet whose lid had been blown off when the bleeder climbed out of it, looking down into the bowl stained blue. The bathroom, lined with shards of glass, was a house of mirrors, and Matilda was already on the other side. Another lesion was growing, this one on her hand. She knew it was there. She knew what would happen. I have to go get better, she whispered. I barely heard her. I saw her filmy lips moving. She must have been trying not to howl, afraid her voice would sound like the banshee father was fighting. I can't stay any longer. I leaned my head against the splintered eave of the bathroom door, with my legs falling out from underneath me. I'm sorry, Matilda. I'm going now. I thought I heard gurgling coming from the pipes. The sudden thought of Matilda, dead and crystallized at age seven, in a world where houses turned her away and bleeders hid in gutters waiting for enough numbers to gather, assaulted me and I did want to hold her down and shut her in her room for safekeeping, but I was sitting by then. Couldn't bring myself to stand, but just watched her. Go to Zurichia, I said. It's safe there. Grandma and Grandpa are there, though. She dove in. There was a splash. She could fit because her body wasn't a body. Matilda? Matilda. By the time Father chased the bleeder up the stairs and back to where it came from, I was lying on the mess of medicine and soap bottles on the bathroom floor with my eyes closed. I heard it, like a high-altitude plane passing over, a mix of a whine and a roar, followed by Father's footsteps and his unintelligible yelling. Once the thing was back in the sewage system, he took a sheet of metal and hammered it onto the toilet, without thinking, feverishly saying, Keep safe. Keep safe. Protect the safety of the interior. Matilda's gone, I said, and sighed. 
I expected tears. I expected father to go running out into the bleeder storm to find her. Instead, we sat at the dinner table, the four of us, listening to the quiet hum of our own breathing and the sudden silence between our ears, the walls of our broken house groaning. We didn't make the place stand much longer. I wonder if she made it, but I think she did. I hope. Nadia Bulkin is the author of the short story collection, She Said Destroy. She grew up in Jakarta, Indonesia with her Javanese father and American mother before relocating to Lincoln, Nebraska. She has two political science degrees and lives in Washington, DC. Alexandra Politz is a storyteller and creative technologist with a background in computer science, theater, and oral storytelling. She is currently at the Interactive Telecommunications Program at NYU, where she explores the worlds of interactive story and technology-mediated performance. The Kaleidocast is a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers. Our website is www.kaleidocast.nyc, where you can find links to all our contributors and more content to enjoy. This season's Kaleidocast production team was Brad Parks, founder, CFO, and senior producer. Cameron Roberson, executive producer. Sandra Fink, managing producer. Christopher Lazarick, managing editor and production manager. Marcus Zong, story runner. Anton Borst, editor, producer, sound engineer, host. Carlos Luis Delgado, editor and sound engineer. Jason A. Smith, editor, sound engineer, actor. Sam Schreiber, senior producer, senior editor, sound engineer. Holden Lee, editor, producer, sound engineer. Jason Stack, editor, producer, sound engineer, technical officer. Marcy Arlen, co-founder, associate producer, voice actor, director. Randy Dawn, editor, sound engineer, actor. Eric Rosenfield, chief technical officer. S.J. Pendergraft, associate editor and producer. I am McGuire, associate editor and producer. Sadie Kleinman, producer. Devansha Segel, associate editor, producer, actor. Katherine Erickson, Associate Editor. And a special thanks to Amachai Green. Our music is used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation. This podcast uses many sound effects from YouTube, freesound.org, and from FreeSFX at freesfx.co.uk. The Kaleidocast and all its contents are protected by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 National License. That means you can listen all you like, but don't sell or change it, and give credit to the Kaleidocast and its authors in usage and reference. This episode has been brought to you by our generous Patreon subscribers, whose support has meant the world to us. A special thank you to the Patreon subscribers who made this episode possible. Julia de Guzman, Mary Rogers, and John Dewey. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and sign up for more exclusive content at patreon.com slash kaleidocastnyc.